That's a pretty good hymn to start with. Amen. Yeah, it may be tonight. Who knows? Wouldn't that be something if the trumpet sounded tonight? Oh boy, no midterm exams, says Glenn. Hallelujah. It doesn't get better than that. Yeah. Ah, uh, what a great day the Lord's given us. Great day to live for Him. Is he, do you hear an echo in here, or is it just me? I hear an echo. Is there no echo? Does everything sound right? Maybe it's my ears. Could be. Well, let's look to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Lord God, we love you so very much, and we thank you for granting to us another day of health. We thank you, Lord, for all of your wonderful blessings and your goodness to us. And we ask you, dear Father, to meet with us tonight. Help us to fellowship with you in singing and Bible study and to get our hearts ready so we can pray. Lord, we pray that you would answer our prayers because we only want to pray your will. We want to find out, Lord, what you want done, and then we want to pray for that. So bless us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Can you remain seated as we sing hymn number 246. Hymn number 246. the first. I'm pressing on the upward way. New heights I'm gaining every day. Still praying as I'm onward bound. Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. Lord, lift me up and let me stand by faith on heaven's stable land. A higher plane that I have found. Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. My heart has no desire to stay where doubts arise and fears dismay. Though some may dwell where these abound, my prayer, my aim is higher ground. Lord, lift me up and let me stand by faith on heaven's stable land. A higher plane that I have found Lord, plant my feet on higher ground On the last I want to scale the utmost height And catch a gleam of glory bright But still I'll pray till hand I found Lord, lead me on to higher ground Lord, lift me up and let me stand by faith on heaven's stable land, a higher plane than I have found. Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. I'm excited to be back into the book of Revelation tonight. And let's turn there now, shall we? The uh, book of Revelation seems to be nicely broken into three Sections, chapter 1 deals with the past, uh, chapters 2 and 3 with the present, chapters 4 to 22 deals with the future. It's a very nice, simple outline. I like that. Um, in verse 1, when John wrote that it was the revelation, by the way, it's not revelations, there's no S on the end, it's all one re revelation, one singular revelation given to John on the Isle of Patmos. So as we refer to the book, we shouldn't be calling it revelations, plural, but revelation, singular. 
And so it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants. And I believe that um, this is going to be largely the tribulation servants. They're really going to need the contents of this book, uh, which must shortly, things which must shortly come to pass. Now, this was written 2,000 years ago, and people say, well, 2,000 years doesn't sound very short. What happened here? What I miss? Why haven't these things happened? Well, sort of, aren't you glad they haven't? If it had happened a thousand years ago, you'd miss out on the, the blessings of knowing the Lord and the glories of heaven and things like that. But what it is talking about, it's that when it begins, when these things begin, it's not going to take long. They will shortly come to pass. And that's the seven years or just a hair under seven years. Um, in verse 4, John to the seven churches which are in Asia. And we'll be looking at these as we get into chapters 2 and 3. These were real churches that um, had pastors and deacons and people. And they had their blessings and they had their burdens. And they had their uh, prayer meetings and soul winning. And they supported missions and all kinds of good things like that. And we'll be looking at those churches a little more in chapter 2. But um, tonight we're going to pick up in verse 9, and um, we're going to get through a few verses. We won't get through all of the verses here tonight, but we'll get through some of them. And um, then it'll prepare our hearts for prayer. So let's begin, shall we, with a word of prayer. Can I give you this, please? Thank you. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this opportunity we have to open the book of God and to study the book of Revelation. And dear Father, there are things in there that uh, we for sure don't fully comprehend. They've never happened before in earth's history. Um, they're, they're just written for us in the future when some of these things come to pass. Those tribulation saints will, will know, they'll see and recognize what's going on. And so we just have uh, speculation. But that's okay. That's all we need. Lord, we pray that you'd use the verses tonight to touch our hearts and help us to, to get a good grasp on the book. It's important, Father, that your Holy Spirit teach us the, the first verses and the first couple chapters of, uh, of this great book that help us to... to um, uh, lay a platform, a foundation of understanding for all the rest of the book. And so help us to this end, please. Prepare our hearts again. I pray this again for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, verse 9. Oh, here we go. Thank you very much. That's for the steam engine. Not there. Um, Paul writes, I... I'm sorry, John writes, I, John who also am your brother. Well, that would be normal, wouldn't it? If in the Lord, they're saved. Um, he is their brother in the Lord and companion in tribulation. He says here, why would he say that? A companion in tribulation. Because other Christians go through tough times too. Sometimes we think that, you know, we're the only ones going through uh, a hard time or the meat grinder or that, you know, things work out for everyone else. They just don't work out for us. Other people get the blessings, but, but we don't. 
No, truth is that other Christians are also um, saying the same thing. And other Christians also are being persecuted. Now, in this country, we don't have the same kind of persecution that they have in other countries of the world. But nonetheless, we're still being persecuted. I think that uh, Satan is the god of this world, the prince of the power of the air, and he has different ways and methods that he uses in different countries. Uh, maybe we don't fear the witch doctor and voodoos over here so much, but we do fear the almighty dollar, and we uh, bow to it, and we say, oh, can't live without it. And so we'll sacrifice um, eternal blessings and eternal things on the altar of the immediate Meaning that, um, you know, we'll, we'll give up our uh, Bible reading and prayer time in the morning so that we can get to work more early or something and make more money. And uh, we do that because we're afraid if we don't have enough money, we can't live the lifestyle that we think that we need or we deserve or something. But it says in 2 Timothy 3.12 that all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. What an elusive dream. Uh, the devil has sold us here in North America. And here in Canada, we uh, call it the Canadian dream. In America, they call it the American dream. But either country, it's still a dream. It's still a dream. And you wake up one day and you say, whew, that was a dream. The sooner we wake up, you know, from the Canadian dream, the better. Well, he says here in verse 9, he says, um, um, brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. The isle that is called Patmos. Now the name Patmos, uh, scholars aren't 100% sure what the origin of the name, uh, what it means, but... Um, it's possibly, it means my killing. What a terrible thing to call a, a, a little country, a little island or something, my killing. Apparently, uh, Patmos was a very um, bare, rugged island with very little vegetation on it in the Aegean Sea north of the Isle of Crete. It's about 34 square kilometers, 13 square miles. We ready with this? All righty. Uh, nope. Stop that. Where's my PowerPoint? We ready with the PowerPoint? Ah, there's my PowerPoint. Okay. Revelation. Here we go. So you see that little circle-y thing there? Does this work now? Okay, good. There we are. Here's Mediterranean Sea. Here's Israel over here in Jerusalem. And here's Crete. And just north of it, right in here, that's the Isle of Patmos. Hey, look at this. Here's all of these uh, seven, well, I won't tell you what they are. Maybe you've already guessed. I don't know. Maybe, maybe you know. little uh, close-up, Patmos. See it there? There it is there. And it's off of the mainland. Apparently, they'd throw political prisoners there. Here's a, a close-up more of, of what Patmos looks like. It's not exactly a pretty looking uh, island here. It looks like it suffered disease or something. But uh, that's kind of a modern map, if you will. 
And that is modern Patmos. It's inhabited. So um, back in John's day, they would throw political prisoners there, people they didn't want. They'd throw them onto the island. But uh, here, as you can see, there's a bunch of little houses there. And look, a castle. They call it the Castle of Patmos. But it was originally a monastery, a Catholic monastery up there. And it had been attacked many times. It's, uh, what, a thousand years old or more, something like that. And so they would keep fortifying it, trying to make it stronger. But that gives you a little idea. But even here, you can see there's pretty rough terrain in there. But uh, all that is Patmos. So none of these houses were there. That boat wasn't there when John was writing. And um, under the Roman rule, um, Patmos was the island that they would banish prisoners to, criminals. Remember that in the case of the Apostle John, they tried to kill him by boiling him in oil. Now that normally would kill somebody, but supernaturally he survived. And they, they say that he looked a wreck, that the oil did a, a number on him. And so he was banished. Now we don't know if that is so, but they weren't able to kill him, so they figured, well, let's throw him on a Patmos. So today... It's actually a beautiful little tourist spot. Apparently, there's about 3,000 inhabitants there. A couple of quaint Greek-style villages with shops and restaurants. And you have that movie? Okay, I got a movie for you. Make sure the volume's turned up. And let's, uh, let's go visit the Isle of Patmos for just a few moments.
that says Patmos in Greek under there. Kind of a pretty little place, almost makes you want to go there, eh? But back in John's day, no one wanted to go there. Um, they'd throw you off the boat onto the island, and um, there would just be criminals there. And uh, it's like, you know, an open prison. They could kill you. Um, maybe once a week, once every two weeks or something, a boat would come, and they'd unload a bunch of food or something, and then the boat would leave, and people would... Uh, the idea was you, you, you stayed there till you died. So that's Patmos. Um, I think it would have been a lonely spot there for John. He at least had people to witness to, I suppose. Some folks that needed the Lord, he could have done some preaching possibly. I imagine he started witnessing to some of the criminals. Wouldn't it be something if we get to heaven and we meet some Christians there who used to be criminals, banished to the Isle of Patmos? And John was able to witness to them. Um, you see, that's what happened uh, in the book of Philemon to a, a runaway slave by the name of Onesimus. He ran away from his master Philemon and he ended up in Rome and he uh, got caught stealing or something and thrown in jail right into the prison cell, cell with the Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul talked to him and led him to the Lord. And then when Onesimus was released, Paul wrote the letter Philemon and uh, gave it to Onesimus to take back to his, uh, his master, Philemon. Interesting, isn't it? You know, you can witness in some way or other just about everywhere you are. There's ways of doing it. Uh, just an encouragement for us. Ah, uh, let's see here. There we are. There's John there. And... Um, I don't know, all we can do is sort of speculate. He must have spent a lot of time in prayer, I'm thinking. Well, what were John's crimes to make him a criminal? What were his criminal charges? Well, let's see here in verse 9. It says, um, he was in the Isle of Patmos for the word of God. Look at that. Do we have that? Yeah, that's his crime. His first crime was for the word of God. I guess because he, um, he preached the word of God. And the uh, second here is the testimony of Jesus Christ. You know, we, we might think it strange that he'd be persecuted and thrown in jail for that because of the nice temperate climate, political climate we live in com compared to the Roman rule back then. But still, there are people today that are severely persecuted for these things. And even in our country, uh, as we go door to door with the gospel, we get doors slammed on our face. Not a lot of them, mind you, a few of them. doesn't happen often, but it, it does happen that someone has such an animosity, a hatred for the gospel that they poof, slam the door. That uh, alone is what keeps some Christians away from soul winning and door knocking. And... Um, well, I don't think that that's a good excuse. I don't think so. So believing the Bible and telling others that you love the Lord Jesus, and you do that, and, you know, people are going to, uh, to take exception to that if you let your light shine. Oh, well, if that's the case, I won't let my light shine. Brothers, sisters, we're called to let our light shine. 
But if I let my light shine, then maybe I won't get the raise or the bonus at the end of the year. Forget that. God can make that up to you a thousand times over. It's far better for us to let our light shine. Well, what if I open my mouth and I try to let my light shine and I do more harm than good? Well, consider you know, how much good you're doing right now by not saying nothing. There's no light being shone out. The, the candle is lit and put under a bushel. So that does no good. Truth is, God promises his word will never return void. And if we have an opportunity, we need to take it. And I'm not advocating that we uh, uh, use stupidity or uh, aggression in people's faces or that we, uh, we be dishonest and, and uh, uh, sort of do a bunch of witnessing on the employer's dime. And what I mean by that is you've been paid at, at the job you work at. You've been paid for so many hours a day and we're to, to work properly during lunch hours or breaks or before or after. That's another story or on your own time. But um, I think that God gives wisdom for this sort of thing. Well, look at verse 10. He says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Now, some scholars argue if this meant Sunday. Uh, in the gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 1, he explains, this is the same John, he explains that Jesus arose from the dead on the first day. And we know that that's Sunday. We know it's Sunday. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was talking to a man, and he was part of the Seventh-day Adventist. And um, he uh, came and sat in front of me to chat with me, and I was friendly to him. And it was only after a couple of minutes that I realized he was trying to trick me into a conversation. And so um, I just let him have it. <laughs> Told him what the scriptures have to say about this. His religion, the Seventh-day Adventist, is a mixed bag. It, um, uh, it has both saved and unsaved people in it. And their historic doctrine, now they've tried to change it lately, but their historic doctrine from their founders teach that if you're not worshiping the Lord on Saturday, you're not saved. That's their historic teaching. They can't escape that. That's in the history books. I know they're trying to change their doctrine these days. If you were to go back 30 years or so and walk into a Christian bookstore and go to the section on cults, you'll see the Mormons and the J-dubs and things, but you'd see Catholics and you'd see Seventh-day Adventists. Those were classed. They were understood by conservative Christian. They were understood to be cultish. And you'd find books on them under cults in that section. Today, uh, most, most of the Christian bookstores are owned by the Catholics. They bought them out. And so when you go visit the the section on cults, you won't find Catholicism there. And you won't find anything on uh, Seventh-day Adventists, SDAs, either. But this is a big uh, point for them. It's so big that they named their whole religion after it. You know, Seventh Day. So for them, it's Saturday. It's the big be-all and end-all. It's made the whipping post. And they always come at you and they say, Oh, you, uh, you believe in the, the Ten Commandments? They try and hook you in. What about the fourth commandment? Eh? How about that? How come you're not keeping that? Oh, beloved, we're not, we're not here to talk about that tonight. I don't have the 
the, the time to share some of these things with you. But if you know how, you can knock that straw man down fast. Now, this particular man who sat down in front of me, I told him things that he said, what? Like he'd never heard these things before. And finally, he had nothing to say. And he said to me, God bless you. He got up and left. But if, if you know uh, how to do it, you can knock that thing flat. Because that, that basically, it, they're trying to take you and put you under law. And we're not under law. We're under grace. Okay? And let no man judge you concerning uh, new moons and Sabbaths and holy days. Let no man judge you. So this guy obviously hadn't read the book of Galatians or the book of Colossians, otherwise he'd know these things. Anyhow, that's for another, that's for another time. But some, some people argue if when John said he was, he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, what day of the week is he talking about? Does it really mean Sunday? I believe it does because the very same John wrote that Jesus rose from the grave on the first day. The expression, the Lord's day, must have been common amongst, the, amongst those seven churches in Asia. We, we saw where Patmos is and the one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. That's where those churches are located. And John is writing to those churches and he said he's in the spirit on the Lord's day and they knew what he was talking about. And so the Lord's day must have been a very common expression back then because he didn't have to offer any explanation whatsoever. Um, let's see, I think we can slip this in. Let's go back to Acts. I'm trying to be careful of my time here. Acts chapter 20. All right. Um, we have Paul and his company in Acts chapter 20. And we've got seven men mentioned here that uh, are going with him. Anyhow, they're in Greece. And uh, verse 6, we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. Now, that would be very uh, familiar to uh, all of the, the Jews. That's uh, all around Passover. We came unto them in Troas in five days, where we abode seven days. Now look for seven. And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached. And by the way, he preached till midnight. So, you know, don't, don't get upset with, <laughs> with my preaching if I, if I go a few minutes over, okay? He went to midnight. He had good things to say. Um... In Corinthians also, we're talking about the first day of the week. And so it makes all of the normal, common, natural, logical sense. This is Sunday. That's the first day of the week. And John was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And by the way, great things can happen on the Lord's day. That's very true. We should never sell out to the devil our Sundays. The devil may try and exchange. Well, I'll tell you what. Why don't I send you on a nice vacation? But you just can't go to church on Sunday. No, you're, you're, you're exchanging, you're selling out. Be very careful of selling out uh, your Lord's Day. So he said, uh, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. Now, see here. Um, in the Spirit. Now in your Bible, 
when it says that, when he says, I was in the Spirit, in verse 10. Is that a capital S you have in your Bible? Yeah, yeah. yeah it is. Now, what does that mean? Must, must be a reference to the Holy Spirit. Can't be a reference to the human spirit, because that's never put in a capital, is it? It's always, um, it's always, when it's a reference to the Holy Spirit, it's in a capital. If you look at chapter 4 of Revelation, verse 2, John's writing, And immediately I was in the Spirit. Now, is that a capital S or a small s? It's a, which is it? Small s. And so, that's indicative of the human spirit. Here, we've got a capital S in verse 10. Uh, so what was that, you say? Well, the Holy Spirit was involved. There must have been some kind of spiritual trance or dimension. Now, there's no other Bible reference that I'm aware of quite like this. I believe a, it's a reference to um, godly uh, Christian service, such as prayer. Um, we have, for example, Galatians 5.16, This I say, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. We have Galatians 5.25, If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. We have Ephesians 6.18, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. These are all capital S. Colossians 1.8, Who also declared unto us your, your love in the Spirit, capital S. And so, here's four references. They're sort of similar Bible references. So when John says that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, quite possibly, uh, well, it could have been some sort of spiritual trance, possibly, but there's no other Bible reference like it. Or, more probably, it was a reference to godly Christian service, such as prayer. And when you're praying... The Bible teaches us that at times the Holy Spirit is helping us to pray. And there's no reason why we wouldn't believe that uh, this couldn't be the same. That basically what John was doing is he was in deep prayer on Sunday, on the Lord's Day. He was in tremendous fellowship there with him. Um, maybe he was on his knees, maybe he was on his face. We're not sure. Anyhow, we're, uh, we're, only, we're only speculating on, on this. And um, apparently, while he was in this, uh, this time of prayer, it says here, he, beh he heard behind me, it says, I heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. Now, when he says a great voice as of a trumpet here, that would call attention to something, wouldn't it? Trumpets have a habit of doing that. When people hear trumpets, they usually sort of turn and, and look. Trumpets were used and still are in military to uh, call out orders to the, the troops on the field. Um, great people were often announced with a fanfare of trumpets. They'd uh, make this parade down the, uh, the, the big street of the city and the trumpets sounded. John turns and he sees Christ. He sees the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Why did John have to turn? Did Jesus sneak up on him? 
Well, there's two possible answers. Consider this. John may have been conducting a church service at the time. That's possible. It doesn't say he was completely alone here. He may have led a few of the criminals to Christ and he was having a prayer meeting or a small little church service on Sunday. He may well have been on his knees or possibly on his face praying. Uh, that's a possibility. We're not going not to go to the wall on this one, but it's possible. Um, also, maybe more probable is John was simply on his knees facing toward Jerusalem, which was very, very common. Now, Jerusalem at this time, remember, was destroyed. The Romans destroyed it in 70 AD. The temple was gone and everything. But the Jews still, and even to this day, will turn east and point toward Jerusalem. Uh, I found an app that can go on the phone called the Jew Compass. Ever heard of that? The idea is it, it, it points you in east, points your direction toward, toward Jerusalem, wherever you are in the world. That's the idea of the app. It's called the Jew app. Uh, the synagogues, not all of them, but many, many synagogues, they build them so that the front door faces Jerusalem, faces east. Interesting, isn't it, how they do that? Well, um, this is uh, uh, also a possibility, in my thinking, maybe even more probable, that John was simply on his, his knees on the shoreline facing Jerusalem, the ocean in front of him. Uh, you know, Daniel did the same thing, right? Daniel would pray three times a day facing toward Jerusalem. And so he hears this, uh, this voice. Verse 11. Here's what the voice said. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, unto Smyrna, unto Pergamos, unto Thyatira, unto Sardis, unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And so here is the Alpha and the Omega, which is another way of saying the first and the, and the last. These are terms that we're familiar with. Jesus is the first and the last. You say, what does that mean? It means he's the, the author and the finisher of our faith. He is everything to us, folks. He encompasses all time. Keep your finger there in Revelation. Let's run back quick to Isaiah. Let's go back to the Old Testament Isaiah. And let's find Isaiah 41. Isaiah 41. And look please at verse 4. Who hath wrought and done it, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord. Notice it's all in capital. See that? Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. This is the way the translators of our King James Bible communicated the name Jehovah. Whenever you see that in the Bible, it's a reference to Jehovah God. Okay? And so, I, the Lord, now look what he, how he refers to himself. The first and the last, I am he. That's exactly like Revelation 1.11, just what we, we read. 
the Lord Jesus, who is the first and the last. Here is Jehovah, the first and the last. Let's look at chapter 44. Isaiah 44. Look at verse uh, number 6. Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord. Now notice two, two mentions of Lord, all capitals, Jehovah. The Jehovah of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Now watch this. And beside me there is no God. That's powerful stuff. We're learning that the Jesus of the New Testament is the Jehovah of the Old Testament. That's who he is. And one more. Turn another page or two. Chapter 48. And verse 12. Hearken unto me, O Jacob and Israel, my called. I am he. I am the first. I also am the last. So here is, is something that any Jew would know back in John's day because they read the scriptures more, they studied them more. They would be familiar with these terms. And here John on the Isle of Patmos in deep prayer, I'm sure, hears this trumpet voice behind him. It's the Lord Jesus. And he's referring to himself as the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. So I think that that's, that's, very, um, that's very telling. And so he says here, uh, what thou seest write in a book. This forms the basis of the book of Revelation right here. What the Lord Jesus just told him now forms the basis. That's why we have the book of Revelation. And then he said here, send it unto the seven churches that are in Asia and they're mentioned there. And we're going to be looking at them more in depth um, next time we get together. And now we get to verse 12. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. There we are. There's an artist's rendition of, of what the candlesticks might have looked like. Um, this, at first, was a mystery to John. At first, he didn't understand it, but he soon understood that these seven candlesticks were the seven churches in Asia. You say, well, how do you know that? Um, if you look at verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. The seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. The seven churches. A couple things I want to point out. Number one, there's no such thing as a universal church. There are some people that don't believe in the local church. They believe in a universal church. And they think that once they're saved, they're part of this invisible universal church. Now, Sometimes there is a reference made, a very generalized reference made to all believers as, as the church. But 9.9 .9 out of 10 of them of references to the church is all local. 
That's the whole idea of the church, is it's local. Christ is the head of this church. We are the body, members in particular. There are so many problems with a universal church mentality. Number one, who's the pastor of this universal church? Number two, who's the deacons of the universal church? Number three, what's the doctrine of the universal church? Number four, if you cause offense and you're unrepentant, how can they put you out of the universal church? It's these and many other questions that just knock to pieces an idea of a universal church. I remember reading a humorous story about a missionary who came to see a pastor about getting support. And the pastor said to him, well, uh, are you a member of a, a church someplace? And the missionary said to the pastor, brother, I'm a member of the invisible church. And the pastor said, um, well, where, where is this, this church you call the invisible church? It's the invisible church. You can't see it. It's everywhere. And so the pastor said, well, I see. And you're looking for support. Missionary said, yeah. So the pastor reached into his desk and went like this and said, here's some invisible money and I'm going to support you in your invisible church. Churches are meant to be local. They're like families. I know that sometimes we talk about the family of man, you know, in kind of a generalized sense. But a family is local. It has geography. It has members of the family. Often there's a mom and a dad, not always. And um, often there's kids, but not always. And different numbers of kids too. And these Little units, we call them families. And they're scattered all over the place. Each one is a family. That's the same with the local church. That's the whole idea of it. And Christ, because he's God, he can do some things we can't, you realize. He can be everywhere at once because he's God. He is able to be the head of this church and the head of the church down the street. Both are local churches. Both are his body. And just as there are some families that are dysfunctional, there are some churches that are dysfunctional. And just as there are some families that have turmoil or problems or a problem child or something, so there are local churches that have turmoil and problems and problem members. Their families is what they are. So this is very important. These seven churches, they weren't all one church. They were seven different distinct churches in different cities each one having a pastor and deacons and members. Each one had doctrine. Each one had a track record and a history. Some of them you'll have heard of. Some of them maybe you haven't heard of. But we'll be getting to those, those later. Um, Jesus, though, is pictured here as the light of the world. And Jesus is sure, surely the light within the church. And one of the biggest problems, problem churches, and it's in chapter 3, we'll get there, is the church of Laodicea. And the church of Laodicea felt that they had all of the money, they had all of the power and prestige and everything they needed, and they really didn't need Jesus. And they had actually kind of 
Jesus is pictured as on the outside of the church, knocking, can I come in? Can, can, can Jesus come into his own church? That's kind of crazy, isn't it? I told you so many times about the, uh, the church up here in North Surrey. I learned of this I think it was 16, 18 years ago, something like that. And that particular church had a lady pastor and she was trying every way she could to try and get people into her church. And so, in order not to offend anyone, she would never say Jesus' name. It was referred to as the J word. And they would never say the J word in church. Because someone might get offended and leave. Now, doesn't that sound like a church where Jesus is on the outside? The church at Laodicea, I'm not sure that they were that crazy. But they were crazy in other areas. And they thought that they were increased in goods and wealth and power and everything you could, you could want. And there's a lesson there for us, by the way. When you and I have all of our needs met and we're real comfy, we got good health and we got good money and we live nice and we eat good and life is good and we're comfortable and people are nice and, you know, the, the list of blessings add up. We forget God. That's what happens. We're human. We do it. Um, throughout today, how many times did you pray? Throughout today. How many times did you, did you pray while you were walking or driving your car or perhaps while you were engaged in some activity? How many times today did you pray? Now the typical answer is, well, pastor, okay, I can't be expected to pray all through the day. I'm busy. Too busy for God. I'm guilty of this myself. I've learned the best way to live is to start a day with the Lord and to finish the day with the Lord in your prayer closet. And then you connect the two together with prayers throughout the day. That's the best way you can... That day is a success. That's a good day. When God is forgotten, it's not a good day. And so we need reminders. And there's all kinds of ways you can remind yourself to pray. One way that, that I like to use is I'll take a little stone. I call it an Ebenezer. In the Old Testament, they had an Ebenezer that was called the stone of help. And it was a reference to God. You can look it up later the Ebenezer. And here's my little Ebenezer, and I put that in my pocket because I tend to put my hands in my pocket and when I touch the stone, it reminds me to pray. And I can be talking to someone with my hands in my pocket and I can be praying at the same time. Or they could be talking and I could be praying, Lord, help me to fully understand what they're saying. Lord, give me the wisdom. You know, put, put grace in my lips. And, and we can do that sort of thing. Now, maybe you don't have pockets or you don't put your hands in your pockets. There's other things you can do. Put something jangly around your wrist, maybe. There are different ways that we can remind ourselves. But the best way that if you ever want to have a great day, you start the first, the first portion of the day alone with the Lord. 
And then you finish the day alone with the Lord. And then you connect the two with these dots of prayer. Boy, you'll have a wonderful day. John here was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And so he was faithful. And it was Sunday. And I don't know if he had a certain little spot he'd go to that he'd call church. I don't know. We'll find out in heaven. But he was a faithful prayer warrior. He was spending time with God. And while he was close to God, that's when he heard the voice of God. And God revealed all these amazing things to him. It's only when you and I get close to God that we're going to hear the voice of God. Not a big audible voice because we don't need that. The Holy Spirit can speak to our heart. This book, this book of God, is your portal, your key, your telephone, if you will, your communication with God. And the Holy Spirit will really make the verses jump out at you as you pour over it and read it. Well, we're going to stop there and we're going to finish the chapter next time. And um, I trust that uh, what we've done is sufficient to warm up our hearts and get us ready for a spell of prayer. Let's, let's pray.